as hiring managers, as leaders of organizations, we find people who share the same ideology, the same belief as we do. Because when they come to work, they're not coming to work for this transactional exchange. They're doing the work because they're intrinsically rewarded. Because doing the work, it's a way by which I'm able to self-actualize. And that's unbelievably powerful. I'm Patrick Pacheco, and you're listening to season four of In Good Companies from Cadence Bank, the podcast where we guide you through the forces shaping your business inside and out. Here's a question for you. What makes a good job? I mean, a really good one. Is it salary and benefits or is it the meaning of your work? The team you see every day. Research by Deloitte shows that in the past decade, our professional expectations have changed. Today, our youngest workers want jobs where they belong, where they keep good relationships with their colleagues, businesses with a purpose in line with their values. In short, they look for culture first and foremost. So how can culture help your business? That's a question for today's guest. My name is Marcus Collins. I'm a marketing professor at the Ross School of Business and the author of the best-selling book, For the Culture. Marcus knows the ins and outs of culture. 15 years ago, he was in the music industry, running digital strategy for Beyonce. After that, he worked in advertising for big agencies like Donor. He saw firsthand how culture drives marketing, but also what it means to people. So Marcus dug deeper and asked the hard questions. What does culture mean, actually? How can we use it to reach the right people, add in new talent to our teams, and work better together? He turned his research into a book, For the Culture. Today, we get a crash course. From marketing your products to hiring your teams, culture is the foundation to a good company. Simple, right? Well, maybe not quite. There's no external force more influential to human behavior than culture, full stop. And when you hear that, you go, yeah, that makes all the sense in the world, totally. But if you ask five people to define culture, you'll get 55 different answers, and that's a problem. We often say in the world of advertising, we need to get our ideas out in the culture. Or we need to be informed by culture, uh, what's going on in culture, or even we're hiring people. You know, we have a foosball table in the kitchen. We have a great culture here. Just, just culture, 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 culture. And as I was investigating, I realized that my understanding of culture was superficial at best. I had some, you know, intuition about what culture was or what was cultural, but I didn't really have the language to describe it. And I found myself in practice being hamstringed and being able to leverage its power in any sustainable or consistent way. Because if we can't fully describe a thing, how do we ever fully harness its power? So I started to study it. And when I did my doctoral work at Temple, I wanted to see how brands and branded products spread or propagate within a cultural context. And this is when I, when I came to, to understand culture through a sociological lens and then through a consumption lens, then an organizational lens so that we can harness and operationalize its power. And the idea of all this is that once we have language, a perspective and skills, we also have a responsibility. So most of the time in our podcast, when we talk culture, we mean company culture, but, but it seems mm -hmm. like you're talking about culture in a, in a much broader sense in, in some ways. So what's your working definition of culture? Yeah. So I think about culture through a sociological lens, particularly through a gentleman by the name of Emil Durkheim. And he would talk about culture as a system of conventions and expectations that demarcate who we are and what people like us do. It's a system 
of norms, a governing operating system that dictates what is acceptable for people like us, right? And who are we? We are our identities, right? And within this context, we share a point of view of the world, beliefs and ideologies. This is our, our shared collective understanding of reality. And then we tell ourselves stories about said reality through the ideologies. So for instance, for some, a cow is leather, for others, it's a deity, and for some, it's dinner. Which one is it? It's all those things, depending on how you see the world and who you are as organization, as an institution. And because of your beliefs, you navigate the world accordingly, right? If you believe that a cow is a deity, then you engage with the cow and the world through a particular lens. There are a set of artifacts that we don, behaviors that are normative, and the language that we use, right? And these things make up the system that is our way of life. So because of who we are, we see the world a certain way. And because we see the world a certain way, we navigate the world a certain way. And then we express ourselves through shared work. And we think about culture broadly, we think about it through art, literature, film, music, television, dance, and brands and branded products become ways by which we express our identity, the beliefs we hold, our shared way of life, and our shared expression I think you're, you're right. Like when I talk about culture, I think about it from a macro lens because of how all encompassing and pervasive culture is. But the same mechanisms that drive culture at that macro level are the same mechanisms that drive culture at an organizational level and at a consumer level as well. That's it. So I used to teach law and economics and I would start with these papers on normative systems. And that's what they were. They were how, what is driving the social norms and how do normative systems get picked? With the idea being is because economics, a potential normative system for behavior. But uh, yeah, I'd, I'd lose them with that. You're so right. I mean, you know, the, the idea of culture, it is a meaning making system that is a measurement of normality. What is normal, right? There are social pressures pushing you, telling you to be normal, telling you to dress a certain way, to drive a certain vehicle, to wear your hair a certain way if you have hair, uh, to marry a certain kind of person, uh, to work at a certain kind of company, to eat certain things, to bury the dead a certain way if you bury the dead. All these things are byproducts of our cultural subscription and their social forces telling us to be normal telling us to operate within the conventions and expectations of people like us. And since we are social animals by nature, as Aristotle put it, we are given to be in community. We are given to be together. We want to belong. So culture is about coming together in more ways than one. Your community gives you an accent, a sense of humor, a way of socializing. It changes how you interact with the world. And those behaviors, they have everything to do with business. Marketing is the act of going to market. And why do we go to market? To get people to adopt behavior, right? That's the job of marketers. And what I argue in the book is that whether you have marketer in your title or not, you are a marketer, right? And somewhere or another, you're trying to influence people to adopt behavior, whether it is to buy something, to download something, to vote a certain way, to get your boss to promote you or to be more productive, to get your kid to eat peas. I mean, we're constantly influencing behavior. We're all kind of marketers in that way. And there is no external force more influential to human behavior than culture. So culture becomes the cheat code to getting people to adopt behavior. Now, the question becomes, well, what people are most likely to adopt behavior? I don't know about you, but for me, one look at my social media and I know who's influencing me. Everyone I follow is either a friend or someone who inspires me. They're people whose vision of the world I want to share. 
And according to Marcus, that's exactly the point. If we're trying to get people to move, the people we should be targeting are the people who see the world the way we do, or I refer to as the collective of the willing. So then the job of you, marketer, leader, manager, activist, politician, your job then is just to preach the gospel. When you talk about the world through your point of view, through your cultural lenses, the way you see the world, your ideologies, the stories you tell yourself and tell the world about the world, people go, finally, someone said it. Man, I've been feeling that way forever. Finally, someone said it. And then they go take your message, your product, your cultural production, and they go share with people who are just like themselves as a way to present and project their own identity. And that's unbelievably powerful. Because when we look at the world that way, we start to activate a network effect that get things to propagate, not through our voices, but through voices of people that have much more credence with their people than we do. So how do you identify your congregation or what happens if you're, you identify a congregation and realize you're in the wrong congregation? If you're a manager <laughs> and you, everybody else is a different congregation than you are, I mean, is that gonna, it seems like it's gonna impact your success with, with that group. Totally. What this means for managers is a great imperative on being judicious about who you hire. You know, we often hire people because of their expertise. We hire them because they've done the job elsewhere and been successful. So they're definitely going to be successful here. But we also know that that doesn't always work. But we rely on that as a shortcut to mitigate the possibilities of us hiring incorrectly. But what I would argue is that just as much as we look at experience, we need to look at shared point of view, shared way of life. There's a great illustration of this in what's known as the, the bricklayer's parable. You've probably heard of it before. And the idea is this, you know, if I drive down the street and I see, see you, Patrick, um, laying bricks, I go, what are you doing? And you go, I'm laying bricks. You have a job, you lay bricks. But if I drive down the street and I see you laying bricks, I go, what are you doing, man? You go, oh, I'm building a church. Well, you have a career, you build churches. But if I drive down the street and see you laying bricks, I go, dude, what are you doing? And you go, I'm building the house of God. You have a calling. Which one of you are more excited about going to work every day? The one with the calling. And that's the idea, is that we find people who share the same ideology, the same belief as we do. Because when they come to work, they're not coming to work for this transactional exchange that I'm going to give you my time, you give me money, and that's why I'm here. Don't ask me for nothing else. I ain't staying until after 5 o'clock. I ain't coming in earlier than 9 o'clock. This is a transactional relationship. And that's how we typically think about work. But the people who are fired up about the work they do, they're doing the work, not just because they're being rewarded or being compensated, but because they're intrinsically rewarded by the work. Because doing the work is a way by which I am able to realize my own ideological manifestation of the world. It's a way by which I'm able to self-actualize. And that's unbelievably powerful. Which means then, as managers, as hiring managers, as leaders of organizations, we've got to be very judicious about the people that we bring in. Are people here just because of the value propositions, i.e. the name look good, looks good on their resume, the benefits are good, the pay is great, or are they here because they believe? I think when they believe, you're going to get more out of them and they get more from you. The reciprocity of that relationship goes far beyond the transactional. At Cadence Bank, relationships define us. That's why we make a point of getting to know you, because it helps us serve you better. Visit cadencebank.com to learn more. 
Cadence Bank, member FDIC. To harness the power of culture, figure out what your business is really about, and you'll know who you want on your team. Then there's only one thing left to do, put it out to the world. So I write about this, and then I give an example in the book about an organization that focused on internal culture as a way to get more people to show up. So GE, now here's a company that's been around for about 130 years now, right? Nothing sexy about GE. You know, most of their business, their bigger business is B2B, selling wind turbines and things like that. But GE in 2015 or 2016, somewhere in that, that time frame, uh, GE decided to do a national campaign, like a big above the line campaign to the general public that was meant to drive new hire acquisitions. So it's an HR play that they're running on television, right? Big ad. And the name of the campaign was called What's the Matter with Owen? And the vignettes you saw of this gentleman playing Owen is that no one understands him, right? They say, you work at GE, so you're going to work on, on trains. You work at GE, you're going to work on, you know, these very industrial things. And Owen goes, no, no, I'm going to work on the systems that run trains. I'm going to work on the networks that make these things work. People are like, huh? I don't understand. And the question becomes, what's wrong with Owen? Like, why does anybody get him? And the foil here, the reveal, is that GE as a company, their co-founder, Thomas Edison, would say, I look at what the world needs and I go invent it. We invent the future. We make the future. We build the future. And here's Owen saying, that's what I'm about, building the future. And GE is telling these stories of this fictional character, Owen, as a way of saying, at GE, we get you. We understand. No one else understands you, but we get you. Because like you, we're trying to build the future. So come get a world-changing job at GE. That campaign ran for 18 months, I believe. And in the 18 months, they saw an 800% increase in job applications to GE. Now, in those commercials, there was nothing about salary, nothing about 401k, nothing about benefits, nothing about where you'd be located. Instead, people were driven by the notion of building the future. And that's unbelievably powerful, unbelievably powerful, because we typically think that the way that we get people to do things is value proposition driven, right? dangle the carrot in front of them and they'll go chase the carrot. And as long as you keep the carrot in front of them, they'll keep on, they'll keep on running. But what this shows us is an illustration of what the literature has been telling us for well over a century. It's who we are, how we see the world. Those are the things that govern how we show up in the world. When I took over the group at Cadence, the asset management and trust group, I went out and hired a number of people and they were in bigger firms making more money. And I approached them all the same, said, I'm going to pay you less money. You're not going to have a group of analysts sitting outside your door that you can walk out at six, throw something on their desk, tell me you need it in the morning. Uh, if there's new marketing materials you want, you probably have to create them yourself. But you're going to have a role in the way the bank does business in this group from now and into the future. For you know, the long term, you're going to have a role and we're going to have local decision making. Not a, It's not a fiduciary officer that's sitting in New York or North Carolina or something else. And I'd say, are you interested? And every single woman said, I'm interested. And they're all very impactful employees. It's, uh, it's, it's been great. So you have a quote in the book that I, I found really interesting. It says, it's not what you say, it's what people hear. And can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah. You know, when we're communicating, we're communicating through our perception of reality 
in hopes that people receive it the way we intended it. A frequent uh, riff that my wife and I have is that she'll ask me to do something. And I go, yes, dear. And she go, why you say it like that? And I'm like, I just said yes, dear. She's like, that's not what your face said, though. Right. <laughs> so like, the, what, what I am communicating is not being translated with the same intentionality that I meant it to be, which means that because people see the world differently and they translate the world differently through their cultural lenses, then what people say isn't always what they hear. And that means when we talk, we have to be unbelievably proximal to who these people are. We have to have intimacy to understanding how they'll see it and translate it. So now after being married for 11 years, I go, don't say it like this, Marcus, because you know exactly what Alex is going to say. Watch your face because <laughs> you know exactly what she's going to say because mm -hmm. I know her so well now. And that's my wife of 11 years. It took me some time to get there. So when we are communicating to the public, we're communicating to our, our, our employees, to the organization, we are communicating to many people with different meaning-making systems. Therefore, our chances are much higher communicating with people who see the world the way we do. We have to be very mindful, be very empathetic to think of all the many permutations, all the many ways by which our message might be received and translated through these people. And that requires a tremendous effort of empathy. Staying in tune with people's emotions is delicate work. It takes practice and sometimes you're going to fumble. So how do you avoid any major misstep? There's three things to consider. The first is things aren't the way they are. They are the way that we are. That's why for some, a cow is leather. For others, it's a deity. And for some, it's dinner. And therefore, there is no objective truth. The truth is subjective, right? So when you start with that framing, you go, even though I see it this way, even when I read these words out loud, when I hear them and I see them manifested, I see it this way. Someone might see it differently. And they're not wrong. And neither are you, Right? They're not wrong, neither are you, the first. The second is that we have to develop a muscle for empathy. We have to set aside our biases, our ethnocentrisms, all the way in which we apprehend the world through our cultural lenses and see the world through someone else's lenses and go, okay, if I say this, someone may see it this way and they may see it that way. Should I say it? Is it worth saying? Or should I find another way to say it? Even though I feel like it's the perfect metaphor, even though I feel like it's the perfect illustration, if I say it this way, I'm going to upset Chris. But if I say it that way, then I might offend Mary. Is it worth it? Probably not. But the only way you can know how Chris and Mary might interpret it is to have close proximity, which leads to the third thing. We have to be really good at communicating in ways that evoke emotion. Because even if the words make all the rational sense, if it evokes the wrong emotion, none of the rationality matters. We are not rational human beings, we're rationalizing human beings, right? We make our decisions emotionally and then we justify them rationally. Therefore, when we're preaching the gospel, when we're talking to people, we're communicating, we have to think about it. Like, are we evoking the emotion that we want? Because it's the emotion uh, that, that's connected through a shared ideology, right? It's, it's, it's the way we see the world that, that makes us feel wronged, right? Like, I don't like what she did because, like, that was disrespectful. Well, why? 
or that offended me. Why? Because of how you see the world of what you think is acceptable, right? The emotional parts that we have come from the beliefs and ideologies that we hold, which is why shared belief and ideologies is so unbelievably important. I used to do a lot in the political world and run wrote help campaigns. And I guess we, we'd call this activating your base, but that leaves a whole lot of undecideds out there. So how do you reach these undecideds, these new markets that, that have a, maybe a little different ideology? And can you, can you step in, can you be in two, three, four or five different cultures and still be kind of true to you, who, who you really are? Sure. Absolutely. I think that this is sort of the best part about finding your base, the collective of the willing. They go preach the gospel on your behalf and they convince people with whom they have closer connections than you ever have, right? And this isn't just a qualitative assessment. We know this statistically as diffusion curve. And the idea is this, that diffusion curve, that typical bell curve that you know from middle school and high school, that that bell curve is the representation of how value is distributed in a population. Everything that is not man-made, that is not human-made, abides by that distribution. That's why we call it the normal curve. And the more in the middle you are, the more normal you are. So to your point, like, well, how do I get those normal people? People who are not my people, but like everyone else. And the, 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 the myth is that we should be talking to the middle the normal consumer, the normal employee, the normal American, the normal person. And the thing about those normal people is that there are forces pushed on them, telling them to be normal, to act a certain way, to dress a certain way, to go a certain place, which means that they, by their very nature, are practicing a risk aversion strategy. So they're less likely to move Anyway, they're not the first who's going to buy your album, not the first who's going to vote for you, not the first who's going to download your, your movie or subscribe to your newsletter. They're not the first to do anything. They're going to look at everybody else first, which means statistically, empirically, if we want to reach those people, we have to activate the tribe, the people on the fringe, the people who, quote unquote, seem weird, because everything that is normal today, everything that's in the middle of that diffusion curve all started on the fringe side. Whatever movie you just saw last or show you watched last, it wasn't because you saw an ad for it. It's because someone was like, you need to be watching Successions. You're playing yourself. And you go, oh, I guess I need to watch Successions because everybody's watching Succession. So the idea is that we get scale in the aggregate, but not by talking to people who don't see the world the way we do, but by activating people who do. Thinking outside the box will take work active work, because most of us like being in the norm. And it's a humbling thought, right? We're not really immune to a trend. We're all in that curve, even us on the business side. Do you think the majority of companies who are marketing their products do try to appeal to that middle and miss out on, on where they really need to be? Of course, it's because it's efficient. <laughs> Just, you know, it's like blast a message to the middle and prayerfully, hopefully, God willing, inshallah, we will be able to reach people. Right. And if we reach them, maybe, maybe, maybe we can convert 0.012% of them. Like that's the entire marketing communication business. We actually call it the sales funnel. It's so fluid and commonplace that we keep doing it because there's social pressures telling us to be normal. Right. That's what we learn in business school. And that's what we're told when we're in industry. And we keep doing the same thing, expecting different results. And it becomes much more expensive to reach audiences because there are more people in the middle, normal. 
and therefore it's louder. It's more congested. It's more saturated. That's why the Super Bowl is so expensive. That's why advertising during prime time is so expensive because that's where everyone is. But this is what we do, not because it's accurate, but because it's fluid, not because it's real, but because it's easy. It's clear that culture is a powerful tool for business, and it's up to us to use it for good. You know the saying, with great power comes great responsibility. The things we've been talking about, it's neither good nor bad, right? It's just, it just is, right? It just is. The fact that we are influenced by people like ourselves is just how we're wired. It just is. However, the difference between it being neutral or without value then rests on the intention of the user. Because the same things that can get people to work at GE, those are the same tools, the same uh, cognitive levers that can be pulled to get people to, you know, to be radicalized by ISIS. Therefore, the user, that is us, those who become knowledgeable about these cognitive heuristics, we now have a responsibility to use them ethically. Now, the thing about ethics is that ethics are culturally mediated. So for some, one thing is ethical, for others, it's not, right? So I try to make the argument that, you know, we have to be very mindful about how we use this knowledge because we can be hurtful to society and to individuals. Ethics are complex. So while practice won't make perfect, it will make progress. Just follow the Marcus method. In my work, in my practice, I offer a rubric that I use that I call IPO. IPO, that is intentions, perspectives, and outcomes. So the intentions are, what are my intentions in doing this thing? Like, why am I doing this thing? Is it just to make money? Is it just to get my candidate elected? Is it, is it self-serving? Or is there a benefit to the end consumer? Is there a benefit to the voter? Is there a benefit Am I doing this in such a way that I am contributing to the exchange? And they go, yes, okay, my, my heart's in the right place, right? Again, that is a subjective measurement. And then I go, okay, so what's the perspective of the people that I'd be engaging? That is, how might people who are not me perceive this piece of work, this speech, or whatever I'm putting out in the world? How might they perceive it? Which requires me setting aside my perspective in adopting the lens of someone else, right? Being empathetic. And particularly from the most marginalized community that could potentially bump into the thing I'm putting in the world. So now I have my intentionality that I measure to be good. I have a perspective of people who are not myself. And I go, I think this is going to be okay. No one's going to be offended. Or I think the people will get it. Then I say, what are the potential outcomes? Like what could go wrong? If people don't get it, What's the worst that can happen? And it's those three variables that I use as a calculus to say, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to do it. But if it passed the sniff test on intentionality, doesn't pass on perspective, and the outcomes, the worst that could happen is pretty bad, I go, I'm not doing it. Even though I have the best intentions in the world, I'm not doing it because of what it might mean to people who are not myself. I think that's really important. In many ways, culture is the company you keep. It says a lot about who you are. So to turn culture into power, remember this. Culture is a set of values and ideas for how the world works. 
It's something we share with our peers. So use this to define your business identity. Ask yourself, what do we care about? How are we perceived? Who do we want to work with? And remember, your answers might change over time. Once you're clear on who you are, put yourself out there. Find those who identify with you. They become your congregation and connect your company with its community. Keep in mind that we all want to belong, which means we might struggle to branch out. So find ways to expand, bring in new people, and stay mindful of your actions. They will affect who you work with. Finally, culture is not right or wrong. It's a neutral thing. So creating a good environment for your company, in the end, it's up to you. I'd like to thank Marcus Collins for a fascinating and energetic conversation. We have much to learn from his knowledge, passion, and boundless curiosity. In Good Companies is a podcast from Cadence Bank, member FDIC, equal opportunity lender. Our production team is Sheena Cochran, Edie Pingeli, and Natalie Barron. Our executive producer is Danielle Cornell. This podcast is made in collaboration with the team at Lower Street. Writing and production from Andrew Gannam and Lise Lavati. Sound design and mixing by Ben Crannell. This podcast is provided as a free service to you and is for general informational purposes only. Cadence Bank makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, completeness, or timeliness of the content in the podcast. The podcast is not intended to provide legal, accounting, or tax advice and should not be relied upon for such purposes. To the extent that this podcast includes predictions about the economy, these predictions are subject to a number of variables and you should confer with your legal, accounting, and tax advisors for their input regarding the possible outcomes of any economic subject matter discussed herein.